Hey, you ever needed something for your home but don't have the cash or credit to pay for it? You can do that at Aaron's. Yep, you can rent to own appliances like washers, dryers, or refrigerators, furniture for your living room or bedroom, even tech. Plus, Aaron's has great brands like HP, Samsung, and Ashley. Life's always changing. Keep it, return it, upgrade it. Aaron's fits your life instead of the other way around. So check out your nearest Aaron's store or visit Aaron's.com to see what I'm talking about. Approval isn't guaranteed and some restrictions apply. You got to see your local store for details. Clean and protect your firearms with Riptide Armory. Riptide Armory's products are military and professionally formulated and approved, featuring a groundbreaking graphene-infused ceramic coating that is safe for all surfaces, providing unmatched protection for any firearm. Discover a new standard in gun maintenance. Order your advanced cleaning kits today at RiptideArmory.com. Riptide Armory. Relentless performance for your firearms. Hey, if you're looking for a thermal device that does pretty much everything on the planet, check out Pard Optics FT34 Thermal Front Clip-On. It is a game changer in thermal. It's a versatile three-in-one device with a quick detach mount for easy scope attachment eliminating the need for re-zeroing you know, every time you put it on. It offers features like one-shot zero, PIP mode, blind pixel correction, auto hot target tracking, Wi-Fi connectivity, and, this gets my kid very excited, video recording to a 128-gigabyte micro SD card. You can even use it as a compact handheld spotter for scouting. This unit does it all. Check out the FT34 as well as many other great optics at www.pard, that's P-A-R-D.com. This is the Meat Eater Podcast coming at you shirtless, severely bug-bitten, and in my case, underwearless. We hunt the Meat Eater Podcast. You can't predict anything. Presented by OnX Hunt, creators of the most comprehensive digital mapping system for hunters. Download the Hunt app from the iTunes or Google Play Store. Know where you stand with OnX. Hey, everybody. I don't want to discourage you from listening to this episode. It's about Pebble Mine in Alaska, and everything you're going to hear is pertinent and relevant. But here's, here's the weird thing. While we were recording this episode with Tim Bristol about Pebble Mine in Bristol Bay, Alaska, a big news story broke. In this episode, you're going to hear mention of a guy named Tim Collier who works on behalf of Pebble Mine. While we were recording the show, it came out that Tim Collier, who served a CEO role on the Pebble Mine project, was secretly recorded saying some things that are speculated about in this coming episode. This will make more sense after you listen. For instance, he acknowledges to some people who are posing as potential investors to the mine we're going to be discussing today. He acknowledges not that this would be a 20-year project, but this that phase one of this project would be a 180 to 200-year project. And he discusses certain politicians by name who he says, sure, 
they'll pay lip service to opponents of the mine and they'll act like they care about having this mine done right. But at the end of the day, I'm friends with them. I know them and they'll just rubber stamp the thing. That's in essence. I'm, I'm paraphrasing them. That's an essence of what this guy says on these secretly recorded tapes. And Tim Collier, who we're going to discuss quite a bit in this show, had to promptly resign. So understand that this episode happened in the minutes before this major twist in the story occurred. So dig in and you will walk away, eh, borderline expert on Pebble Mine. And hopefully, like me, you'll come to the decision that this is the wrong mine in the wrong place. And we need to fix this problem once and for all. All right, we're joined by a super special guest out of Homer, Alaska, Tim Bristol. How predictable is it that I bring up that, you know, you know what I'm going to bring up, like about your name? Yeah. How'd that work out? Uh, either chance or fate, you know, take your pick. So What I'm getting at here, his name's Tim Bristol. Yeah. You've dedicated how many years to fighting Pebble Mine on Bristol Bay? 15. Did you change your name to Bristol? I you did gonna- not. Nope. I was born with that name. At what point were you like, wow, huh? You know, my name is the name of that place. I think the best thing about it was when I started going out to these communities, these native villages, you know, a lot of us white people look all the same, you know, kind of go out there in baseball hats and rain gear and, you know, have some kind of, you know, scruffy, scruffy beard and some kind of Patagonia shirt they, on. They, they remembered me because they're like, Tim Bristol, we remember your last name. It's so good. It was great. So, so it worked out, you know, it worked out really well. It was advantageous. Yes. Can you, uh, man, like explain to people as though they're five years old. Yeah. As though 12. they're 20 years old. <laughs> Explain to people like they're 20 years old what, when someone says Pebble Mine, okay, what is Pebble Mine? Considering that it's, at this point, it's nothing. But what are we talking about when we talk about Pebble Mine? Pebble Mine is a proposal to build either the second largest or the largest open pit gold and copper mine in the world at the headwaters of the most productive wild salmon fishery left on the planet. And it's a choice for Alaska. You know, we're, we're at a crossroads. We got to decide whether we're going to allow everything everywhere, or are we just going to say some places are just too important for renewable resources, for thousands of American jobs, for America's, you know, natural heritage. And we're not going to allow this to go forward. The superlative largest or second largest what does that hinge on well it's all about the habitat when you're talking about sockeye salmon production right so no i'm talking about the mine size like it would be the well, largest or like you mean there's there's varying proposals or like it's unclear how to measure them well the there's there's this is where it gets really confusing for the public and incredibly irritating for us that are trying to you know punch through and tell the truth on this thing it is the largest known gold resource 
and the second largest known copper resource in North America. And when the head of the company, Pebble Limited Partnership, this guy named Ron Thiessen, goes and talks to investors at you know, World Gold Forum and things like that, he talks in those terms, those superlatives, that this is a you know, world-class resource that we may be able to mine it for 100 years or more. But then when Pebble comes back to the public, when Pebble gives a proposal to the Army Corps of Engineers, they say, oh, we're going to be there for 20 years and then we're going to go away. And, you know, there's really no way to sugarcoat it. It's a flat-out lie. And the government right now is swallowing it hook, line, and sinker. It makes it incredibly frustrating because I, I just, you know, if you talk to people that don't have a, that don't have skin in the game, that are experts in the mining world, they'll tell you that they're not going to make any money in the first 20 years, and there's no way they're going to stop after 20 years. The shareholders wouldn't let them. Everybody who was part of the company would get sued, and they would just put a whole new set of leadership in there and then apply for a little additional permit and just keep going. Would it somehow make it better if they did stop after 20 years? Yeah. Would that would that ease your mind? <laughs> not really, no. And... Because the, the damage will be done as far as like the all the infrastructure and the what it takes to open the mine, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I would, I would point. I would try to find, you know, a place in the world where that's happened, right? Where you spend billions on infrastructure, roads, a port, uh, getting a natural gas pipeline out there, and and then just quitting after twenty years, right? When you which you may have not turned a profit by that point. So, I, I just you know that's not going to happen. And then you have a whole bunch of other mineral claims staked around the Pebble Prospect. The thing that people don't realize is you're looking at a 1,000 square miles of mining claims at the headwaters of Bristol Bay. And that would make it one of the largest mining districts, if not the largest mining district in the world. And you start thinking about the implications for wild salmon production, and you look at wild salmon runs all, the, all throughout the Pacific Rim, and you pretty much know how the story is going to end. You know, uh, have you ever heard this, that all of the gold that's ever, that's in existence above ground, so all of the gold that's ever been hauled out of the earth since the Egyptians, is there's only enough to fill three Olympic-sized swimming pools. Huh. Really? All of that really? gold. Yeah. Three I'm going to start Forbes, using that. Forbes, estimate, est Forbes estimates it that it uh, would take, that all the gold since 2000 B.C., including the Egyptians, that all of that gold would fill 3.27 Olympic swimming pools. That's what's ever been dragged out of the earth. Because yeah. in that one Die Hard movie, they had so many trucks <laughs> full that you would think that would have been 10 pools. Yeah, I mean, a Olympic-sized <laughs> swimming pool is no joke, though, either. Man. Yeah, it's a lot of volume. <laughs> the Okay, put your uh, mining engineer head on for a minute. I don't have one of those, but I'll try. Okay. I mean, I mining engineers are smart people. We should know? have brought one in. Like, <laughs> yeah. explain, because it's the process, right? Part of what pisses people off about Pebble Mine, it, like, it's not like you're, out, it's not like a bunch of old dudes dressed up like Hatchet Jack out there with gold pans pulling nuggets. Right. Yeah. Like, explain leech, you know, cyanide leech mining. Yeah. So, it, you know, with Pebble, to get back to the, Speaking to the twenty-year-old, it's size, type, location, right? It's the it's the size of the mine. We, we've already talked about that. It'd be one of the biggest excavations in the history of mankind. Really? When you include the pit and the infrastructure, so Pebble Pebble, if if to go to full build out, would use more 
energy on a daily basis in the city of Anchorage, and you've been through there a bunch of times. It's not a small town. It's 260,000 people there. It would suck up that amount of electricity. Yeah, and use... Or fuel and... And water. It would use more than twice as much water that is used by a city of 260,000 people on a daily basis. You're so, kidding me. And, you know, I don't know if you've ever flown over the mine site area. There's nothing there. I mean, it's just it's just wilderness. Yeah. It's, it's an amazing spot. And it drains two ways towards two river systems, up towards the Nushigak, Mulchatna, and then down, down towards Lake Iliamna and the, the Quijak River. And those are the two major drivers of the, of the salmon fishery that I think we'll probably talk about a little bit. But so from an engineering standpoint, you're talking something, you know, the biggest development project in Alaska since they discovered oil on the North Slope and built the, the Trans-Alaska Pipeline and, you know, Dead Horse and Prudhoe Bay and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And then... Uh, so you got a size and then you have the type of a mine. So there's a lot of gold and copper in the ground, but it's not a very rich ore body. Um, it sits in a, in a big sulfide deposit and you basically, so a friend, a friend of ours who's worked for a long time with us, who has some background in mining and he used to be the state Senate president, guy named Rick Halford, lifelong Republican, um, big game guide, retired big game guide. He, uh, he calls it a sulfur mine with a gold and copper component. You have to get through a whole bunch of waste rock to get to the gold and the copper. And then the big problem, the engineering problem, the one that's chased away Anglo-American and Rio Tinto and Mitsubishi and Quantum Minerals, some of the heavy hitters, has been what the hell are they going to do with all that waste? Because you have... Well, those are other mining companies yes. that you just named. Yeah, and they no, all... Those are like the contractors... There's like the developer and then the contractor. There's the is developer. That, is that analogy not accurate? There's here? a developer, the sort of the, the hype machine, which is Pebble Limited Partnership, the, the snake oil salesman, Yeah, if I may. And then there's the, the majors who actually design and operate mines. And, and we should get to the fact that, that Pebble, part, like the sort of, brain, the, the, the sort of uh, brains behind this, I'd like to get to this because I don't understand this well. They're having a hard time sort of finding the contractor. Right. Like They're like, hey, here's this crazy house we're going to build, and contractors keep coming in and being like, eh, that's not for us. So, I like that analogy, yeah. So you get Anglo-American, Rio Tinto, Mitsubishi, Quantum, all walked away. Anglo walked away from a $570 million investment. And I think it's, you know, it really comes down to, and what we've heard through the grapevine and Lots of experts that have just kind of been around the proposal throughout the years have said, we just don't know how you're going to manage that kind of waste over time. It'll be like the, like a Berkeley pit beyond comprehension. I think that's another piece from the, the, the 20-year-old standpoint that needs to get explained. When you're talking about that waste, about that sulfur, what what are we talking about specifically in terms of containment and the potential for if it gets out? Are we being condescending to 20-year-olds? Yes. Yeah, probably uh-huh. But I mean, actually, I, yeah. <laughs> actually, actually, we are because my coworker, she's 22 and she's way smarter than me. So, <laughs> way smarter. We okay, so her in to talk about explain it as stuff. though talking to a 46 year old. Yeah, there you go. Um, yeah, I, I want to get it like, why? Okay, let me just throw this out real quick. We have a thing nearby to where we're sitting right now, well, an hour and a half drive mm-hmm. from here called the Berkeley Pit. Right. And it at a time was the like golden copper mine yeah it's in butte montana you always i don't know what this means you always hear it thrown out that like once upon a time butte had per capita more millionaires than anywhere in the country but i was thinking too if you had a community of 100 people 
and there happened to be a millionaire there, you would have more millionaires per capita. So I don't really people like to throw that out there. Yeah. Um, there's a great history of Butte in the Berkeley Pit. There's just an article. There's all these books, but there's an article called Pennies from Hell, and it gets into like what exactly happened there, and they tunnel mined it, right? Just like pulling out chunks, but over time, technology's improved. Right. The quality of the ore decreased in different areas, and they eventually got to this thing where they pull the shit out of the ground, and the ore contains what you're after, copper, gold, silver, and you leach it out by, you pour acid on it. Cyanide, yeah. Cyanide. You pull it up, crush it up, dump a bunch of cyanide on it, and then it it dissolves, correct? Right. And there's some way that you then harvest it, but then you wind up with all of this contaminated liquid that then has to go live in a lake. And Berkeley Pit is a problem that will never go away. Right. It's an enormous... A hundred snow geese once landed there and died on the water in that pit. And it'll be a problem into... You know, I don't want to over-conflate Berkeley Pit with this, but I do want to talk about like, like what, what they mean when they say... Because I think people think of mining and think you're going to dig a hole and all of a sudden all this gold starts flying out of the hole. No. And then you load it on airplanes and fly it somewhere. Right. Yeah, they're talking 10 billion tons of waste associated with full build-out of Pebble. Um, a percentage of that would be highly reactive sulfide-bearing rock. And when that sulfide-bearing rock is exposed to air and water, it creates dilute sulfuric acid, which oh. has a half-life of never. It just has to sit in a pit and be treated in perpetuity. That's but, the part I didn't get. So yeah. that, so it's like it's something that when you pull it up and allow it to oxidize or exactly. expose the water, then it creates the problem. Right. And you put that shit into a lake. That's right. And build a dam to keep it from going anywhere. An earthen dam in an area that's one of the more seismically active places in the world. You know, it's on the Pacific Rim of Fire. They had an earthquake out there last year that really shook our house. Um, it was high sevens. So... You know, and they talk about, oh, we got the dams designed, nothing could ever go wrong, but you're seeing more and more of that of these these modern mines, you know, that they have such huge amounts of waste that they have to contain that it becomes a real problem. And, and Pebble makes, you know, Berkeley Pit look like, you know, just a, just a dot. It's way bigger. You know, you just mentioned a seven, uh, earthquake in the sevens. I was just reading this book about the... What, what year did the big earthquake hit Anchorage? 64. I read a book about the... John Muallam, who's been on this show, just wrote a book called This is Chance. Hmm. And it's about the 64 earthquake in Anchorage. And Richter, at the time, was just developing his scale. And it's an exponential scale. So a seven is 10 times worse than a six. Right. He, he was a nudist. <laughs> Richter. He was down in California um, listening to a con- – he'd built the Rick- he'd built the seismograph that he installed in his living room and it drove his wife crazy, this giant seismograph. And he was working on his scale, and he was sitting in his living room listening to a concert with his wife when the 64 earthquake hit in Alaska. And he looked over at his seismograph and said, that was a big one. <laughs> And yeah. lo and behold, biggest yeah. earthquake to ever strike the continent. Yeah. Yeah. It could happen again. You know, that's not that long ago. No. No. No, a lot of these people are still around. Yep. Swallowed streets. Right. 
60 foot tsunami hit Kodiak. Yeah. Yeah. When people point out the seismic air part of the area, I think people are like, oh, you're just being alarmist. But I mean, it's like, it's an actual thing, man. Right. I think, you know, we have a tough time grasping these time frames, right? I mean, this, the acid mine waste doesn't go away. Someone's going to have to store it. And, you know, companies rise and fall and someone's going to have to pay for all that monitoring if you were to, you know, take all these steps and actually build the thing. And over time, you never know who's going to get stuck with the bill. Probably the people of Alaska and the people of the United States. Explain a little bit about what's to be, what's to be lost. Like, besides just the actual destruction, or you can take it both ways. The actual destruction of the footprint, okay, which is not insignificant. Mm-hmm. But I think that that is something that people probably would become comfortable with, maybe. Yeah. Like, okay, there's this, there's this, like, part of the earth that will cease to function as it now is func- It will, like, not be wildlife habitat anymore. It'll be right. the opposite. But then there's this sort of, like, ticking time bomb element, right, that all this shit would just poof downstream. Yeah. Like, what's that look like? Like, like what is the resource that would be the resource resources that could be compromised if the worst, in the worst case scenario? Yeah. And well, and I want to know too if, if, in the best case scenario, are there still compromises to the wildlife habitat? Yes. So the third part, size, type, and then location. So the Pebble Prospect sits in the saddle between the two largest salmon-producing watersheds in Bristol Bay, which makes them two of the biggest salmon-producing watersheds in the world. Because the Bristol Bay being the biggest salmon run, right? Left. It's it's the biggest sockeye salmon run in the world. It's probably going to be close to sixty percent of the world's global sockeye salmon supply this year because you shit me really yeah huh. so the, the total run this year was 57 million fish and the commercial fleet harvested about 40 million sockeye and oh, hit me with that again 57 million was the total run and the harvest was 40 million and you know that's amazing that you can harvest that level and still get the returns i know salmon are incredible if you take care of habitat and you're really on it management wise you know fishing game can turn the run on and off like a like a faucet you know they can they can take 2500 you know hardcore gill netters and say you're done for the day and they all stop can you imagine you did that kind of trim off on a deer population dude (laughs) (laughs) it'd take decades to recover yeah no they're incredible um so it's that location sitting in the saddle between the two rivers and you know, up to and this that's point. them coming in. Yeah, that's the fish coming in. Yeah, that's the return. And that seventeen million then cranks out enough returners to pull another forty million fish out in the future for for yep. human consumption. Yep, yep. We're probably at peak abundance right now. Bristol Bay probably has more salmon coming back now than it ever has because they can go down into the bottom of these lakes and do these samples. You know, these of just where the layers of decayed matter have settled in the bottom of the sediment of these lakes over time and kind of reconstruct runs from 100, 200 years ago. And they think, the researchers think that we're probably having productivity that is as strong or exceeds what you had before before white people showed up. Hmm. So it's a success story. Is that just because the habitat's in in great shape? Is that the theory? 
overwhelmingly about super high quality habitat that hasn't been disturbed. And then, you know, pretty, pretty solid management by Alaska Fish and Game. So, so yeah, so that's, that's, so even if, even if the mine never had something go wrong, um, you're still going to have a destruction of wetlands. You're going to have the elimination of, uh, you know, several dozen miles of, of salmon stream. And then Pebble will point out, well, that's only like one small percentage of the overall, you know, area of productive salmon habitat in the region. What's the problem? Then you have to start looking at what happens if something does go wrong, if there's a catastrophic tailing stamp failure. But let's like that. visit that. Let's visit Yanni's question for a minute. So best case scenario is you lose several dozen miles of salmon stream. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's more than that. That gets into whether they're going to operate for 20 years or they're going to operate for 100, right? That gets back to the thing that drives us crazy, where there, it's, there's a bait and switch going on right now. That's all there is to it. So if you had full build-out, you'd, you'd destroy hundreds of miles of salmon stream, and you'd have this huge excavation. And then you got to remember, the pit serves as a sump. So all the water in and around there that's charging all these, these systems that have these very complex um, interchanges of surface and subsurface water, it all just sucks towards the pit that will be holding the the tailings. So how big's the pit? We don't know as of yet because we don't know what the you know the proposal that's going to possibly get approved by the federal government is, but uh it it would be 1970 feet deep. And oh, how big? 1970 feet deep. And that's going to be a good episode of Deep Drop Boys. And then I'd have to, you know, I can't remember exactly how many miles by how many miles, but we're talking miles. Huh. I've kind of lost some of those Full details. of stuff you couldn't drink. <laughs> no. No. Like no amount of like Steri pen. No. Huh. All right, so let's, let's, let's cover off on worst case. Yeah. So we hired an expert to look at what would happen if you had a, tailings dam failure because the Army Corps of Engineers did not require Pebble to do that during the EIS process, which seems that doesn't seem to be looking at all the things that could or could not happen, right? Um, so we hired an expert and he showed if, you know, a tailings dam let go, you would have waste that would reach Bristol Bay. So the Pebble prospect is a long way from Bristol Bay. It's about 100 miles upriver and up the watershed. It's an enormous watershed. It's like the size of Wisconsin. You know, so, and, you know, he just, he said, based on what I know and what I've seen in other places, you would have mine waste that would reach all the way to the Pacific Ocean, the Bristol Bay itself, saltwater, and would essentially wipe out a whole system for a period of years. And we started going to the public with this presentation. We were going to the commercial fishing fleet because, you know, you have to have the commercial fishing fleet on your side out there if you're going to, if you're going to actually make up a difference politically and started to do a presentation for all these, all these guys before the, and women. As a matter of fact, one of my coworkers is a commercial fishing boat captain. So, um, and Pebble hated the information so much that they sued us. So there's, there's a bunch of details there, but yeah, they just wanted to kind of squelch public debate. They didn't want anybody covering this part of the issue because you know, it's really problematic. And it's like they didn't want to talk about the failure. Right. They didn't want to talk about dam. And they didn't want us to talk about it either. So Because it'll just sit there 
for thousands and thousands of years fine. Or an earthen tailings dam collapses, you know, like happened in I mean, Brazil. Their, their argument would be like, no, it'll just always be there, but it'll always be fine. Yeah. 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 And then, you know, the evidence is starting to really come in, right? So you had that catastrophe down in Brazil a couple of years ago where, and that was a modern mine run by a modern company, you know, a well-capitalized company that really knew what they were doing and tailings dam let go, went to destroy the river and killed people. And then you had the case of the Mount Polly um, uh, mine in British Columbia on a tributary of the Fraser, which is a sa sockeye salmon producer in British Columbia. And they had a catastrophic tailings dam failure and, you know, it's just, it's a mess. Or five years later in productivity at Quesnel Lake, which the waste went out into is, is way down. And, you know, these things can fail. In the recent years, I've read about mass fish die-offs from things ranging from a farmer putting a bunch of hog shit in a pile next to a trout stream. Yeah. Bourbon spilling out of a <laughs> distillery during a fire. Milk killing miles of fish out of a river. It's like these things happen all the time. Yeah. And we're talking about things that most of us sit and like regard as like fairly benign. Milk. Yeah, you can you can <laughs> versus <laughs> drink two of those things. Versus sulfuric acid. Yeah, I know. It's like it's like yeah. it's like well, what's the big deal? It's like, well, I'll tell you the big deal. Ten miles of fish are dead. And when we're talking about where this is, right? Like going toward Iliamna. And this is one thing, just having guided in that area for years, primarily as, as a trout guide, but also for salmon, that is one, there's a reason why people spend tens of thousands of dollars to go there just to fish for a week or two. There, I, I don't know of a trout fishery like that Iliamna system that produces just massive, massive, super healthy rainbows, and it's all based on the salmon, right. bringing the energy back up through that. Everything about that, everything about that whole area, flora, fauna, everything is based on the nutrient return from the salmon coming from the ocean and dragging them hundred some odd miles upstream. None of that stuff would exist yeah. without that nutrient return. Yeah. And so if you're, if you're talking about losing this particular place and, and you know, when I was up there, I have to admit, I hated sockeye guiding. Sockeye guiding is probably the most boring type of fishing you could imagine. But so there's like the, the two levels of, of, of reasons why I oppose this. One is the, the super personal level, which is that I love the place and I love those trout probably as much as any fish I've ever fished for. But then the bigger picture of what the sockeye represent to the economy and to the whole area, like I may not have wanted to fish for them personally, but what they do for Alaska and what they do for the planet is massive. And to lose all that, it's just, it, it's, it's not the same as like your backyard creek. Yeah. Not to say you shouldn't love your backyard, backyard creek, but Lake Iliamna and that whole system and the Nushigak, those places are incredible. Yeah, Miles brings up a good point that people need to think about when you talk about salmon is that, um, well, first off, so when a sockeye gets born, walk me through this, Tim, like a sockeye gets hatched, mm -hmm. okay? He goes down and spends, they, they drop down to a lake, correct? They usually spawn... And inlet, inlet streams coming into lakes. Okay. But there's a, all these different genetic 
subgroups out in Bristol Bay, this this really diverse portfolio of different salmon stocks. So it's really amazing. You have beach spawners and you have some lake spawners, but usually it's a it's a it's a smaller stream coming into a big lake. And, and then those juveniles hang out for how long in that couple lake? of years, year to year, two years. And they're roughly how big when they finally go and hit the yeah. ocean? Like a finger, right? Yeah. And then they're how big when they come back? Probably averaging around five, six, seven pounds. So when when Miles mentions this like this sort of like exchange, you, you have an area where you have an extraordinarily rich marine environment and a somewhat sterile land environment. And just in terms of like in, in terms of biodiversity, like it's it's stunning in the marine environment and and stunning but like limited in the land environment. Right. Meaning you don't have like you have like a great wealth of like large land mammals that are very inspiring and stuff. But when you get down to like just like the species count relative to the marine environment, it's kind of low. Right. So if you have fifty-seven million sockeyes that are going to go up this river, and even if humans then consume forty million of them, seventeen million five to six pound fish basically transport marine resource back up into feed the land that's right millions and millions of pounds of like carbon based life right go up and it gets eaten by everything and shed out by everything everywhere and decomposes and feeds the plants feeds the fish feeds the bears the birds it's like that's where it's kind of like life comes from. That's right, from caddisflies to brown bears. So you you wind up like you, you talk if you talk about oh yeah, so the salmon are gone. You know, my kids always like to ask like, why do we have mosquitoes? I'm like, I don't know, man, but I bet you in a weird way, if we didn't, things would go to shit. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And you remove that. It's like you're removing more than it's not like oh, 40 million people have to find a different thing for supper. It's just different than that. Yeah. Yeah. That, I mean. They've even done studies in British Columbia now where, where you know, the salmon runs have been greatly diminished and the, the ecosystem's just not the same. There isn't as much wildlife. There aren't as many insects. I mean, these, these systems are just completely dependent on salmon. There wouldn't be anything in, the, in these rivers, really. Maybe some grayling, <laughs> uh, some small grayling, right? But you wouldn't, have, you wouldn't have the rainbow trout either, which we haven't no. talked about. You wouldn't have this incredibly huge vicious rainbow trout fishery either you know everything's just keyed in on on the salmon life cycle my boy jimmy i went to my first pebble mine event when he was an infant he's 10 years old but he was a baby he's now 10 yeah it was an event in new york and it was being put on by it was partially being put on by tiffany's the, the, the jewelry company. Yeah. And Tiffany was, was saying, even at that time, uh, sure, we sell all kinds of gold and shit, but we're making a promise that we will not carry these people's gold. Right. How could... Why were we talking about it 10 years ago and we're still talking about it now? Like, what was happening then? Like, how did it even come up to something? Like, what... I'm not asking a very clear question. Let's start with this question. When did someone first say, holy shit, we should mine some gold out there 
on those rivers? Probably, probably 20 years ago. And the, pe- the name Pebble comes from a, a geologist flew over the mine site and, and it reminded him of the Pebble Beach golf course. So... <laughs> Because of the water holes? Yeah, I, you know, so the history is really... The, <laughs> is that history. really what it comes from? Yeah, yeah. I didn't know that. I never, I just, yeah, it's I like sometimes with that. names, you never think to ask, like, why uh-huh. it has a name. Yeah, yeah. It, the history is a little bit... Um, I'd like to smack that guy in the face. I know, what a jerk. <laughs> <laughs> it's looking like a golf course. Except you know, it's the opposite of a golf course. <laughs> but the history is a little bit tragic, right? So you had all these lands that were set aside by the Alaska National Interest Lands Conservation Act in 1980. And... There were all these lands that were over selection, and then they whittled it down. Oh, explain that. I, don't, I never heard of that. You never heard of Anoka? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So Anoka. Yeah. And there was a there was a huge selection pool, and then it got whittled, whittled and that down. Was, that was around like the Native Claims Settlement Act. And- there was the Settlement Act, and then they decided something needed to be done to set aside a bunch of Alaska's lands for the national interest for creating that. Wrangell St. Elias National Park. Okay. And, I didn't know that that was, I didn't yeah. know that that, that that component of that era had a name. Yeah. So it added a hundred million acres to the conservation system in the United States. So it's okay. unbelievable. And that was part of this elaborate deal brokered around like what we're going to do with this new state. That's right. And then how we're going to get away from the reservation system that we used in the U.S. and how we're going to settle with native There's, Alaskans. That was the first piece of legislation. Then there was sort of lands conservation legislation and there were more lands that were part of the selection pool that ended up in passing in the legislation. And one piece was called the Iliamna Game Refuge, and it's the area that now includes the Pebble Prospect. Okay. And if you look at the rest of the land use patterns, management patterns out there, they're all set aside for salmon production and conservation, right? You got Lake Clark National Park, you have Katmai National Park, and then you have the biggest state park in the United States, Wood Tickchick. That's a two million acre state park. And all of them have huge salmon production, all these, you know, low gradient streams and these big lakes that are really productive. And then this Iliamna Game Refuge would have been the last piece of the wild salmon puzzle right out there. You would have the greatest salmon production zone in the world, and it would all be safeguarded in perpetuity. And I mean, I think that's something to be really proud of as an American citizen. And, you know, the state actually managed that area for a long time for fishing game, mostly for salmon production, but also for caribou. There's some Melchatna herd out there and, and moose. And in 2005, we had a governor and a chief of staff who decided that they wanted to take Alaska in a different direction. There had been all these rumors that there was a huge gold and copper deposit out there. There was all this breathless talk of one of the world's great claims. And they took a management plan that was based on you know, renewable resources and that been deeply vetted with the local people out there. And they almost overnight turned it into this area that was going to be open to mineral claim staking. And that's when you start to see, you know, big mining companies and junior mining companies all start to take a hard look at, you know, can we make a ton of money out here? And we've been fighting it ever since. So, you know, I, I was working for Trout Unlimited and we were working on some watershed restoration projects and some forest conservation work in Southeast Alaska and, Pacific Salmon Treaty, and I got a call from this lodge owner, a guy named Brian Kraft, who has uh, two lodges out there. And he said, hey, you're the, you're the trout guy. And I'm like, yeah. And he goes, I got, a, I got an issue for you. And the rest has been history. That's, that was Seriously? Yeah. It's been 2005. And he had two, um, two uh, guys at his lodge from uh, Newmont Gold. And he showed them the preliminary um, 
propaganda from from Pebble, and Brian was like, "Hey, there's going to be more people out here. You know, it'll be good for my lodge. You know, it'll be more customers." And these Newmont guys, they were two experts that were getting close to retirement. And they said, "Fly us over the mine site," and so he did. And they came back and they looked at what was proposed, and they said, "You can't let this happen. There's so much water here. There's so much habitat that's going to be destroyed. There's no way you can do this and have it be successful." You know, with you know, from a from a balance standpoint, yeah, you could you could do it, but you're going to destroy this place if you allow it to happen. And that put the fear of God in Brian, and Brian started calling me, and I've been lucky enough to have a whole bunch of great people I've worked with throughout the years. And, you know, we spent a lot of time out in the region with the people who live there who hate the idea of the mine at a tune of about 85% opposition. So it's been, it's been a long grind. We're still in it. Get back to your question from a long time ago. We're still in it because of politics, right? The pendulum keeps swinging back and forth as to what we're going to do with our, with our, you know, best wild places. And here we are. Hey, everybody, I'm talking here about Montana Knife Company from our very own state of Montana. This company was founded by one of the most experienced master bladesmiths in the world, Josh Smith who over recent months I've become friends with. And my God, have I learned a lot about knives from this guy. Just a phenomenal hometown company that makes world-renowned knives. Josh has been making knives for 30 years. You get one of these knives up and open it, it is sharp like something that came from outer space. And here's the deal. They make knives that can be sharpened. You can work on these knives. If you don't want to work on them, you send it to them and they'll work on it. They'll get it sharp. Phenomenal hunting knives. If you want to see them in action, we just did, uh, me and uh, John Hayes, the taxidermist, just did a video about how to properly skin a black bear. Um, Watch that video, and in that video, you'll see Montana Knife Company knives in action. MKC products usually sell out in minutes of being released, which is true. But now for the first time, they're dabbling with having knives in stock on their site. So right now you can grab yourself a Blackfoot 2.0 or the Ultralight Speed Goat. Use code MEATEATER and you get 10% off your first order. Montana Knife Company. Working knives for working people. 10% off with the code MEATEATER. That's a good deal. On X Hunt is always striving to help make hunters more successful in the field each season. This hunting season, they will have a bunch of new features to help you on your next hunt. These features include new aerial imagery options like leaf off, recent imagery updated every two weeks with historic look back, and imagery on demand. On top of that, OnX is reinventing the trail camera market by syncing your hunt app with multiple cell camera manufacturers and helping organize and analyze your photos. You can also now view your maps in Dash when driving to your next hunting location. These are just a few of the many updates OnX has for this hunting season. Try OnX Hunt free for seven days or go to onxmaps.com hunt and use code MEATEATER for 20% off your new OnX Hunt membership. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the app I use most. I love it. I cannot picture life without it. Use code MEATEATER for 20% off on your new OnX Hunt membership.
Hey, you ever needed something for your home but don't have the cash or credit to pay for it? Let's chat about how to get what you need when you need it. You can do that at errands. Yep, you can rent to own appliances like washers, dryers, or refrigerators, furniture for your living room or bedroom, even tech like computers and gaming systems. Plus, Aaron's has great brands like HP, Samsung, and Ashley. And you can pay a little at a time until it's yours forever. Here's the cool part. Say you're renting a 65-inch smart TV and decide you don't want it anymore. At Aaron's, you can return it at any time. Or maybe you want to downsize to a 55-inch or upgrade to an 86-inch. You can do that too. Return it, then take home something new. Life's always changing. With errands, your stuff can change right along with it. Keep it, return it, upgrade it. Errands fits your life instead of the other way around. So check out your nearest errands store or visit errands.com to see what I'm talking about. Approval isn't guaranteed and some restrictions apply. You got to see your local store for details. You mentioned the locals there. It's predominantly native Alaskan. About eighty-five percent Alaskan native. And what's that? What's their take on it? I mean, just for full clarity here, we had arranged to have a colleague of yours, yeah. a, a native Alaskan colleague of yours, come down, but just because of the landscape with COVID and everything, she wasn't able to come down. Yeah. But what's um what's what has been that community's in, in the history of this thing since two thousand five? What has been that community's just asking you to step in and articulate a you know as much as you're comfortable articulating their viewpoint on it. Uh, what has been that community's response to this? Yeah, I mean, they've led the effort from the beginning. You know, even before Brian called me, there were a lot of local people, some of the elders out there, uh, and some, some of the younger people that just said, this is, we don't want this. You know, this is this goes contrary to everything we believe in and everything that we've, you know, our entire culture. Um, so there's been a bunch of polling done by the regional native corporation out there and about 85% of their shareholders oppose development of the mine. And that's pretty exceptional in Alaska. Usually the closer you get to a development project, the more support you have for it. You know, it's still a rural place. We're still heavily dependent on natural resource development for, for income and, you know, wealth and paying for state government. And the locals hate the idea. And they've been the leaders since the beginning. You know, I think one of the things that's been unique is we showed up and we had a lot of ideas and a lot of opinions as to how a campaign should work. And it, we realized pretty quickly that we needed to go to these communities. We needed to go um, talk to locals and kind of let them display leadership. And I think that's why we've been so successful of holding back mine development for so long. You know, you're talking one of the richest gold and copper deposits in the world and you've had politics that to a certain degree have been in favor of doing that that kind of stuff but having that local opposition has just been amazing yeah it's too bad it's too bad alana hurley who couldn't come down and and join us she's she's been she's been working on pebble her entire adult life you know she started working on it when she was in high school before she was like grade school so and that's coming from the perspective of someone whose family and and community members live a subsistence lifestyle yeah it's kind of a blend. based on the resource yeah it's kind of a blend out there you know you have you have a lot of alaska natives who are commercial fishermen as well so they they gill net and uh, trout unlimited has had this amazing program for the last 10 years now where they're trying to build up uh, a stable of of local guides getting more alaska native kids from the region to become sport fishing guides and uh 
the regional native corporation out there, Bristol Bay Native Corporation, just bought one of the big lodge concessions, and they run three lodges now. They've got Katmai Land, and they have they have uh, Mission Lodge, and uh, they're trying to get more of their their people working at the lodges. So I think, you know, I think you're going to see more local ownership and operation of the sport fishing industry as well. Yeah. So which is good. I mean, in terms yeah. of like the, the diversified revenue, you know. Yeah. What 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 has been some of the I think there's like an issue fatigue that takes place. Yeah. With Pebble. <laughs> Tell me about it. <laughs> because like I was saying, I haven't mapped every twist and turn, but um I've been hearing about this thing all the time. And I've been alarmed about it and concerned about it all along. And we're always, you know, often being invited to talk about it. And it's always like, this is the turning point. But it was a turning point a decade ago. Like, why Why are there so many? You know, I remember the thing, you know, you remember Paul Wolf? With, I remember someone saying, like, you could put a wooden stake in Paul Wolf Woods's heart and he would turn up in the next administration. Being like, uh, why is it that it won't go away, but it always seems like this is the turning point? How many turning points are there? Or like, tell me about some turning points. I mean, I don't know. I mean, you know, I stopped trying. But what it's would like be politics. A t- you can't predict it anymore, right? I So big turning points. Give me a turning point from I, a yeah, decade ago. Yeah. So when 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 so when Rio Tinto and Anglo American, two of the largest mining companies in the world, decided to to walk away from the Pebble Prospect, that was huge. And honestly, I wish we'd have had a little bigger party. You know, we kind of. We, we knew that the, the saga wasn't over, but to see two of the major mining companies in the world walk away from a, you know, half a billion dollar investment, that was really significant. I, I don't, for those of us that were just kind of working day in and day out, I think we, we didn't really totally understand the significance of that, right? I mean, you know. And what did they publicly say? And what is the rumor mill about why they walked? Publicly, I think they said that uh, they were, it was during, you know, they were coming, we were coming up on the, on the big, you know, global economic downturn, and they decided to focus their their work on on mines that were closer to operation, closer to coming to fruition. You know, they still knew they had a big permitting process and huge infrastructure costs. So they were like, "We're gonna we're gonna shrink a little bit here and focus on a few other prospects in other places around the world." Yeah, um, that's what they said publicly. And then we heard internally that there was a there's a real tug of war between the two companies that you know one wanted to try to do it in a way that wouldn't have the huge negative impacts that we've been talking about. And the other one said, there's no way you can make any money doing that because the ore grade, the ore body is a low grade and you need a massive excavation to get to the point where you're going to make any money. So that tug of war, you know, they just, they walked away. And then, um, then first quantum was the next big operator that came in and they walked away. And those are really significant events. Um, the other really big significant event was when, at the tail end of the Obama administration, they used Clean Water Act authority to say, um, essentially, that we're not going to grant you the dredge and fill permit, the 404 permit, um, because we have looked at the proposed mine and it's going to have negative, serious negative impacts on wetlands and waterways of the United States. And we got really close to... Uh, to a a victory, I think, 
um, through that process, it was in the, it, you know, it went into the courts, Pebble challenged it in the courts and it kind of languished in the courts for a couple of years. And then, um, uh, the Trump administration came in and they settled the outstanding lawsuits with Pebble Limited Partnership to the favor of Pebble Limited Partnership and started kind of restarted the, the permitting clock again. So that's where we're at. Who who actually owns the land where the who, whose land is where it's the actual thing is going to be? State sit? of Alaska. But it becomes federal because there's just implications for all the stuff. Yeah, because there's federal waters. So the Clean Water Act comes into play and the Army Corps of Engineers is the permittee of record. What is uh what's the state's general groove about this? The governor, the current governor. He's gung ho. He likes it. Yeah, he likes What's it. What's he like about it? I you know, I, I think he sees it as the next big thing, right? You know, we're 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 getting a lot less money for our oil. There's less oil going through the Alaska pipeline. There's lots of people talking about how we're going to be using less oil in the future. I'm not sure I believe that yet, but um, so I, I think that this governor is looking for that next big resource development play that's going to, you know, fill the Alaskan coffers again because we don't pay any state income tax or any state sales tax, and we're heavily dependent on oil revenue for all our budget. The yeah, you're is- also heavily. There's some interesting things about Alaska's economy that I think people should understand is that uh, one. It's a federal spending, a little bit of a sink, federal-wise. Yeah. Meaning the federal government spends far more in Alaska than they get in tax revenue. Yeah, way more. It's the the states that people love to hate. I think New Jersey pays in better than any. like, Like the feds pull more money out of New Jersey than they put in. And I think that's the strongest performing state. Right. Alaska is one of the weakest. Yeah. 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 I want to change our license plate from last frontier to give me my money and leave me alone. (laughs) So So, then instead of paying state taxes in Alaska, the state pays you. Right. So they have a thing called the permanent fund and they take, the state has all these lucrative oil leases on state land. Um, they generate so much money that they cut you a check. And this, and the check that you get cut as a citizen of Alaska and your members of your household uh, isn't tied directly to the price of oil. Right. It's tied to the health of the fund, but the health of the fund is definitely influenced by the price of oil. Right. So you could go up there. Let's say you're a particularly fecund individual. You and your wife could move up there and produce six, seven, eight, nine, ten kids. And make quite a tidy little sum. What is what was the fun? What's the fun play? What did the fun pay last year? You know, it was only like a thousand bucks last year. So yeah. it's actually you know we're coming to the end of the road of you know. But it, it's it's hit highs. Of, oh yeah, it's like three grand. Yeah, yeah. So you could go up there and have like two people go up there, have six kids, and pull twenty four k just in uh, payments. It's been known to happen. <laughs> and you I only, got, you only I have got to be a fr- resident for a year. Yeah, I got friends who view it as blood money. I got one buddy who he every year takes his check and puts it into his kid's college fund because yeah. he thinks he thinks it's blood money. <laughs> I mean, it's actually a really cool concept, but it, it gets to the fact that, you know, oil is not going to happen again. You know, the amount we get per barrel produced is way higher than you get for minerals. It's like 12%, you know, on each on each barrel of oil. And for minerals, 
our royalties regime is the same as the, on federal lands, right? It's like less than 1% return. So it, it's not going to do what our governor Dunleavy wants it to do. Yeah. Let me, let me I, I forgot, I was, let me finish the point about the economy there is that when oil goes south, everything goes south. Everything goes south. School education goes south. Yep. Like spe- university spending, public school spending. Like they get hit, man. Yep. And they're kind of living in a separate, like, just because there's a, something could happen in the lower 48, like whatever, housing thing, whatever, like different blips. They're living a different reality. Like their shit is driven by a completely different set of factors. So you could see, a, like, if oil is going the way you're saying, you could see that someone who's charged by voters with looking at the long-term financial prospects for his state could be excused for thinking, like, we got to do something. Yeah. Yeah. And we have other minds, you know, and you don't, you don't see the big, huge controversy around some of these other minds, whether it's Fort Knox or Red Dog, you know, some of the, some of the bigger operating minds in the United States. And it's definitely a part of the economy. And we all, you know, use all these materials that are coming out of the ground for, you know, our modern lifestyle. So we're not saying that this is a anti-mining campaign, but size, type, location, again. And then you look at what's at stake, and you know, you have about ten thousand American jobs that are depending on dependent on that fishery. So, you know, in a good year, this was not a good year because of COVID. Salmon prices were in the toilet, and you know, the export market was non-existent. But if you know, you're a good gillnet captain in a good year, you can make a hundred thousand bucks in six weeks. And you have a whole whole host of sport fishing lodges out there that are charging upwards of twelve grand a week and you have guides and you have pilots and all kinds of, you know, different segments of that economy are based on on that fishery and the thing's renewable. Salmon prices were low this year? Yeah, they were way down this I year. I didn't know that. Yeah. Attributed to COVID? Yeah. Demand was down. I got you. You know, and then there was the, the trade stuff with China because the Chinese buy a lot of Bristol Bay sockeye, so. Oh, do they? Yeah. Huh. Yeah. I know that that Chinese stuff's messing with some of the logging projects, too. Yeah. I think that that point you bring up is one that I've dealt with, having written in the past a lot about mining issues and Pebble, among others, primarily for fishing-focused publications. I've, I've definitely taken some scrutiny saying, well, you're just anti-mining. And, and you know, to be fair to some of those points, I, my interests lie in the fish, right. right? I don't make my living off of mines, but I, don't, I try to be, as I look at these issues, as, as objective as I can be, and when you talk about pebble mine, you talk about some of the other sulfide type mines. And as I fi- learned more about this in doing some of that reporting and understood like the, the, the process by which the, these byproducts come about in these mines and how toxic they can be. And when they're located right next to a waterway that I personally think is important, I think that you have to, I personally think you should be drawing lines on, well, this is a place we shouldn't have this type of mine and this not to say we can't have sulfide mines elsewhere where there will still be risk, but it's not located right next to a place that I really want to go fishing and a lot of other people want to make their living off of. I don't think it's bad necessarily to come out and claim like your personal stake on something. No. It's like it's better than the opposite. And I, but it's I better have to be honest the, yeah, it's better, yeah, no, it's better than when people um, don't lay out. They're, they're sort of like, personal in investment in an issue and act like they're just acting like completely altruistically yeah that drives me nuts 
And, I would and, rather someone be like, I support these policies. And I'll be frank with you. It's good for me financially. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, 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 like, agree. I like I it. Agree I like it aesthetically. I like it financially. Whatever. Yeah. So to be like, you know, I, I just try to like clear up that all the time by saying my view in terms of when I pursue like my sort of like professional work and the, the, the media products that I produce and things like I try to be that I won't belabor you with my opinions about things that don't impact like the world of like sort of like what's good for hunters and anglers yeah right and i think this is just really shitty for hunters and anglers like i think pebble mine is like shitty for hunters and anglers so i'll come out and tell you like where where i'm coming from on it and i also just think it's i also think that it's uh i don't like the country to make big mistakes where you confuse short-term where, where like you pursue short-term gain and and do things that later we will sit and look like that in a hundred years when we're being analyzed by that generation, that it will be like what idiots. Yeah, well, I mean we talk about a, a sulfide mine much smaller, but similar to this in the third episode of Das Boat, right? And and it's the same principle, and it's about deciding like this particular kind of mine right next to this watershed could be problematic for those of us who really like these fish, and maybe depend on them. I do think, though, like when again going back to the writing that I was doing, I felt like I had a responsibility not just to be honest about my inclinations, but also to say, like, I don't think I'm just anti-mining. I'm not. I don't have this pie in the sky vision where we can survive a modern society without mining for minerals. It's just deciding which places we can do that, and then figuring out how to price them accordingly. Yeah, that's Um, good. That's a good point. And so that's going to cost you more. It's going to cost you more. If we, if we mine less of it, things are going to be more expensive. Right. And, and I, I recognize that, that, that is a, a sacrifice that I'm able to make and willing to make. And other people don't agree on. Yeah. But to me, losing these fisheries just isn't worth it. Can we get into a minute? Like who, who are these dudes? Like who are the constant dudes here? I know that we have sort of the big mining companies that actually like come in and that come in and like do the work, yeah. right? They come in and do the work. They got the capital. Like who, who's the constant presence through this idea? It's this, uh, Northern Dynasty Minerals. They're out of Vancouver, and the Pebble Limited Partnership is a subsidiary from from Northern Dynasty. And what's their story? They're a they're a they're a miner. You know, they are a, they're a non major. So they're kind of the setup people, right? They they go out and they do the exploration. They provide. Uh, all the background on on the geology and the and the and the mineralization, and then they try to attract a major that would come in and invest billions of dollars and actually operate the mine. How many people are we talking about this this outfit? You know, I don't know at this point. Maybe, yeah, I, I wouldn't know. There's been a couple of figures that have been prominent throughout the years. There's a guy named Bruce Jenkins, you know, that was profiled by uh, Travis Rummel and Ben Knight and Red Gold, and we that guy was great. He was like right out of central casting. I mean, everybody hated him immediately. And then, uh, and then there's a guy named John Shively who used to work for the Alaska department of natural resources. And he had to resign under a, a veil of disgrace years ago. And, you know, he's just kind of like old Alaska. And it's like, trust me, I'm, you know, I'm, I would never do anything that wouldn't be for the benefit of the public. And he sold a couple hundred thousand dollars of pebble stock just a couple months ago. And then, um, like dumped or sold. He, he sold it. Yeah. 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 It was, you know, it was at a moment when it, you know, probably looked like their stock was going to go down. Yeah. 
I should I should explain the reference you just dropped for folks. Red Gold was a film was 2007, I believe. Yeah, that that was profiled. I saw that movie early, in early on I saw it in Anchorage. Yeah, I was guiding when it came out, and and it's worth if you want to get some historical perspective on yeah. how this has looked and how long it's been going on, you should check that one out. What it's year was well that? Done. 2007. Oh, so I went to my first Pebble event way before my kid was born. Because <laughs> I'd already been to a Pebble event way before Red Gold. Huh. Yeah, I mean, it was, it was, 2005 was when I first heard about it. I was guiding yeah. up there then, and that was like, everybody was talking about this proposal. And, okay. And sort of lines were getting drawn at that point. Yeah. Um, someone told me recently, is it someone at the the northern? Is it Northern Dynasty? Is that what it's called? Yeah, it's almost like a name that you pick Ridiculous. to be like. It's like a name you pick to be be an asshole, be the bad guy, <laughs> the villain. Northern totally, Dynasty. Northern Dynasty. Sorry, I've dealt with these guys for too long. <laughs> I heard a rumor recently that someone involved there, someone, if they can get this thing across the finish line, they get some absurd amount of money. Yeah, a guy named Tom Collier. And he worked for the Department of Interior under Clinton, uh, and he took this on. And he's good at what he does. You know, he's a he's a Washington D.C. insider. And what's the carrot in front of his nose? Well, you know, if this thing gets to a gets to operation, he gets twelve and a half million bucks. I'll get the guy out in the morning. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If they if they get a record <laughs> decision signed, it's four and a half million bucks. So, yeah, we actually ran a little website for a while there called Cash Grab Collier, and. Uh, it was pretty fun. You know, so that's what he's got to do. Like he's he's motivated. Like he gets like ching. Yeah, yeah. And if you look at look at some of the some of the handicappers out there that really understand the the mining industry and the that world, you know, they they think that this is there's a lot of incentive for the executives of Pebble Limited Partnership to just continue to hype this thing for as long as they possibly can, right? Because as long as people are willing to give them money, willing to invest in their company, they can skim off profits for themselves. Whether they get any closer to a mine or not doesn't really matter, I think, to some of them. Mm -hmm. so. There's incentivized along the way to keep bumping. Yeah. Yeah. And they've spent so much money on lobbyists for the last few years. They're, they have actually spent more money on lobbyists in Washington, D.C. than any other mining company. And that includes, you know, mining companies that are actually running mines. Five years ago, five or six years ago, I bet my sister-in-law... $1,000. I heard about it. It was this. a 10-year bet. She lives in Alaska. It was a 10-year bet where if they hadn't, we framed it this way. If a decade went by and they hadn't begun to pull minerals out of the ground in production, we framed it up in some way. Like it's more than just, you know, testing and stuff, but like in full production, like making gold. Uh, she's got to give me 1000 bucks. When did you make the bet? Five or six years ago. You're gonna win. Sweet. That's the only, that's the only reason I'm into this. That's the only reason we're sitting here right now. <laughs> I don't I don't I'm care what to... your motivation is. <laughs> <laughs> it takes an army. What is going? Okay. We just hit like a new. There was a new. Let's get let's get real detailed now. Let's get real granular about what's happened over the last month. There was some. Army Corps shit. There was some EPA shit. Like, what was happening over the last month or two? So, we saw the final environmental impact statement for the Pebble Mine. Made by who? The Army Corps of Engineers. 
Why is it their deal? They are the they are the they are the the permit agency. They are the agency that issues the permit, and then they go into a consultation with the Environmental Protection Agency about anything that has to do with uh, excavating wetlands and impacting waterways. So it makes it the Army Corps of Engineers business because it involves digging stuff and making dams and whatnot. Yes. Okay. Because you always hear Army Corps of Engineers around like the big dams. Exactly. On the snake yep. and, you know. Yep. Okay. So it's, it's their deal because it's engineering. Yeah. So they, they did a final environmental impact statement, which we thought was terrible. You know, it was just filled with holes. There are all these scientific gaps. There's, you know, we spent a huge amount of time and energy just to analyzing what they put out there and it was it's terrible Hold on, but were you motivated to think it was terrible because it didn't come up with the answer you wanted or was it like legitimately poorly done well we hired a bunch of people way smarter than me and that would stake their reputations on the fact that it was one of the worst if not the worst environmental impact statement they've ever seen so why was it shoddy it's done really quickly okay one and it didn't look at all these you know projected impacts out over out over the time horizon, like didn't look at catastrophic tailings dam failure. Um, in the EIS, they uh, they were talking about a wastewater treatment facility that had never been operated before. Um, they they were trying to figure out how to build the port out there on the west side of Cook Inlet, which is not a not an easy place to build a port. And there were just huge gaps. As you know, it was just like we're gonna we're, we say we're gonna do this. And then there would just be a big gap as to how they were going to actually achieve that and then... Build a port. Yeah. Right. Because you just got to land all this equipment and build roads to get it there. And, yeah. 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 Okay. yeah. And, then, you know, you're dealing with Cook Inlet, which is the second highest tide fluctuation in the world. And starting about now, the weather really gets bad yeah. on a very consistent basis. So we lots of gaps lots of holes lots of technical details that we think needed to be figured out was someone leaning on them to get it done in a hurry yeah 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 because they're just driving toward resolution yeah yeah so massive development project you know scale and scope is unprecedented in alaska since they discovered oil in the north slope and you're going to get an eis done in two years Mm. so we're the, the the final environmental impact statement came out and then they have to wait 30 days before they can issue a record of decision. Who does? The Army Corps. So there's like this 30-day waiting period after the environmental impact statement comes out. And we were expecting to see it pretty quickly. And then uh, we started to see concern expressed by Donald Trump Jr. and Nick Ayers, who was the chief of staff, to... Back up, because I'm confused. The Army Corps of Engineers does like the the, the assessment. They're like, here's what it's going to look like. Here's risks, blah, blah, blah. And then they deliver the final environmental impact statement to the public. And then there's a 30-day period between the issuance of that final and what's called the record of decision. That's the minimum. The the, the record of decision is made by the Corps of Engineers. Right. So they make the report. Right. Then they wait 30 days and pretend to not know what the decision is? Yeah. But I don't get like... Because they're making room for public input. There's no more public input. I don't really know what that 30-day period is about. You'd have to ask a lawyer. Is it like you lay out all the pages and you got one that you don't flip? (laughs) And you're like, and I'll flip this one in 30 days. Yeah, sort of like that. At least that's what it felt like to us. You know, this thing seemed rigged. Is it that part of the Corps is doing 
putting together that that report and then their other oversight committees or bodies within the core that are looking at that yeah well there's usually probably a little bit little bit of a paperwork exercise between that that final and the record of decision there's probably something they have to craft that justifies the record of decision right and then then it would go to the army corps for this consultation about whether they were going to issue or the, whether the whether the army corps was going to give a thumbs up or a thumbs down to that dredge and fill permit and we thought it felt like a fait accompli that the record of decision was going to hit the streets that the that the environmental protection agency was just going to you know not really weigh in one way or another or they would say it was fine and then we're going to be going into court um cuz that that's the thing is like whatever the army corps now we're getting into future alternate reality but the army corps does this they do the record of decision they say like we're on, we're on this is good no problem um at that point, if no one challenged it, at that point, would they like, it's off to the races. We're making a mine. If yeah. no it, one, if there was yeah. no one around to say no. Yeah. Yeah. That would be like, the, the, that's the last hurdle. If the Environmental Protection Agency decided not to weigh in via the Clean Water Act. Okay. And no one sued challenging the record of decision. Yeah. That would be it. Yeah. It's not like the other person you got to go ask permission from. Right. Because the state's on board. Well, then the state, there, there are a bunch of state permits, but to be perfectly honest, they're pretty, that, that, those gears are greased. Okay. I mean, it's the, it's, the, it's the 404 dredge and fill permit, which is the permit. And that's the one that's been the source of this tug of war for, you know, back to the last presidential administration. Like that's the big win. That's, that's, that's. That's the prize. Okay. So yeah. they so they finish the report and they issue the report. You look at the report, you're like, this report's kind of shoddy. And then all of a sudden everywhere in the news is people weighing in on Yeah. Including, you know, folks we didn't expect to weigh in. You know, Donald Trump Jr. and Nick Ayers, who was chief of staff to Vice President Pence and Tucker well, Carlson on his show and what's these guys gripe with it? Well, I think, you know, from what I understand, um, both Trump Jr. and Ayers have been out there quite a few times. And, you know, it's, it's, it's a one-of-a-kind place. They're just like, yeah. Yeah. That's my sense of it. It's like, you know, the kind of the, the, the slogan of wrong mind, wrong place. Yeah. Yeah. And seems then, to have been like, it was just as clean as that. I think so. You know, and I, I think for them, they probably heard about it years because it does attract a lot of hunters and anglers and you know people that don't self-identify as you know lefty environmentalists you know it's 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 a source of a bunch of jobs and it's this great hunting and fishing destination it's it, it's it's one of those things that actually brings people together and i think they just identified it one i think they actually really care and two they saw it as you know good politics so and so then what so then what happened I mean, now we're talking like within the last few weeks. Yeah. So then the Army Corps of Engineers came back and said, you know what? We're not going to sign the record of decision right now because we need Pebble to go back and provide some more detail about how they're going to mitigate the destruction of wetlands associated with the development. So that's where we're at right now. They are saying that they will have that mitigation plan done within a month. Oh, really? Yeah. 
And that quit. Oh, okay, go. Sorry. Go well, I was going to say that I think that's where I personally got sucked into thinking we had another one of those moments of like turning point. Uh, I, I did a whole thing on on bent about this, saying like, "Hey, look at this great decision that came through," and I got flooded with emails from folks who know more than me and said like, "No, no, 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 hold on. the The permit as written was kicked back. This is this is going to keep going. There will be a revision and another process. This is this is not at all over." And I think a lot of a lot of folks had a moment of like, "Hey, we got it." Oh, I had one of those about thirty seconds, and then I saw that people were like, "It's just another punt." Yeah. And and I got sucked into it. I, I and and had to then make a slight retraction on the next episode. Say I, I didn't get all yeah. the all the facts straight on this one. Hey everybody, I'm talking here about Montana Knife Company from our very own state of Montana. This company was founded by one of the most experienced master bladesmiths in the world, Josh Smith who, over recent months, I've become friends with. And my God, have I learned a lot about knives from this guy. Just a phenomenal hometown company that makes world-renowned knives. Josh has been making knives for 30 years. You get one of these knives up and open it, it is sharp like something that came from outer space. And here's the deal. They make knives that can be sharpened. You can work on these knives. If you don't want to work on them, you send it to them and they'll work on it. They'll get it sharp. Phenomenal hunting knives. If you want to see them in action, we just did, uh, me and uh, John Hayes, the taxidermist, just did a video about how to properly skin a black bear. Um, Watch that video, and in that video, you'll see Montana Knife Company knives in action. MKC products usually sell out in minutes of being released, which is true. But now for the first time, They're dabbling with having knives in stock on their site. So right now you can grab yourself a Blackfoot 2.0 or the Ultralight Speed Goat. Use code MEATEATER and you get 10% off your first order. Montana Knife Company. Working knives for working people. 10% off with the code MEATEATER. That's a good deal. On X Hunt is always striving to help make hunters more successful in the field each season. This hunting season, they will have a bunch of new features to help you on your next hunt. These features include new aerial imagery options like leaf off, recent imagery updated every two weeks with historic look back, and imagery on demand. On top of that, OnX is reinventing the trail camera market by syncing your hunt app with multiple cell camera manufacturers and helping organize and analyze your photos. You can also now view your maps in Dash when driving to your next hunting location. These are just a few of the many updates OnX has for this hunting season. Try OnX Hunt free for seven days or go to onxmaps.com slash hunt and use code MEATEATER for 20% off your new OnX Hunt membership. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the app I use most. I love it. I cannot picture life without it. Use code MEATEATER for 20% off on your new OnX Hunt membership. Hey, you ever needed something for your home but don't have the cash or credit to pay for it? Let's chat about how to get what you need when you need it. You can do that at errands. Yep, you can rent to own appliances like washers, dryers, or refrigerators, furniture for your living room or bedroom, even tech. 
like computers and gaming systems. Plus, Aaron's has great brands like HP, Samsung, and Ashley. And you can pay a little at a time until it's yours forever. Here's the cool part. Say you're renting a 65-inch smart TV and decide you don't want it anymore. At Aaron's, you can return it at any time. Or maybe you want to downsize to a 55-inch or upgrade to an 86-inch. You can do that too. Return it, then take home something new. Life's always changing. With Aaron's, your stuff can change right along with it. Keep it, return it, upgrade it. Aaron's fits your life instead of the other way around. So check out your nearest Aaron's store. Or visit errands.com to see what I'm talking about. Approval isn't guaranteed and some restrictions apply. You got to see your local store for details. Does the president have authority to just kill it? Yeah. By what mechanism? Because they don't just, you don't just, when you're president, you don't just run around like ending things. And I mean, it's like you, you do things through processes, right? It would be telling the head of the EPA region that is in charge of Alaska saying like you're allowed to use your authority under the Clean Water Act to reject the dredge and fill permit to use your veto authority and that's what the last administrator did under Obama so yeah because you you see how things work like that like I was amused recently to see that um that like Attorney General Barr right like in a call with Attorneys General gives kind of like guidance like we would like to see, you know, we would like to see action taken in these areas. Yeah, and then people are like, "Oh, okay, so cool. Yeah, I can do that." So I, I can imagine there could be presidential sort of, you know, even him just saying it's not going to happen. It will never let it happen, right? If you were to say that, it would require like steps, right? You know, it's not like he can't just like you know say that on Twitter and have that be the end of it, right? It would have to be that it would flow that way, right? Yeah, and 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 you know, and then some some of our cohorts think that short of using that EPA veto, the the Army Corps could just reject the permit. That doesn't reject it forever, right? And it it kind of kicks the can down the road, but it would be significant. There's no doubt. But now there's been another tweet that came from the president, uh, where he very hard very yeah. hard to interpret. Where yeah he he borrowed directly from an ad that was running on television that evening that had been put up by the Pebble Limited Partnership saying keep politics out of this and then they flashed you a picture of Barack Obama in a tan suit <laughs> just like you know <laughs> so I, Obama didn't like the mine <laughs> Obama Obama's EPA you know said we will we won't permit it I mean Obama went to he went to Dillingham he went to Bristol Bay um near the end of his his term so so they're keeping politics out of it um but i, I don't know so they're, they're, i, I no, read like no. i read and analyzed that tweet but i don't know what that tweet meant no that's the thing is no one knows now right and for those of us who have been working on it for so long and have seen all these twists and turns, he said like don't, alaska is a beautiful place great place yeah we'll keep politics out of it yeah i guess it depends on whose politics right I don't know how you can keep. I don't know how anyone could promise to keep politics. Like, what politics is the means by which the public's voice is heard? Like, I don't. When people say that, like, keep politics, it's like as annoying as when people say follow the science. Yeah, I was like, who's okay? Who's science? Right. The ones that say it's a sweet damn. 
or the ones that this greatest damn ever made, you know, I or mean, the ones that say your damn won't work. It's right, like, right. Fo- like, it's like a non, like people say that keep politics out of it. It's like a non statement. Yeah. I, I mean, it's like, it's, it's like, it's empty air. I never understand what that means. I know. Yep. Does that include my opinion? <laughs> <laughs> In that I vote, like I don't, I don't, yeah. I, I, so I didn't know what the hell that meant. Yeah. I mean, and to to your point from earlier, Steve, if you like were to plot out a timeline on this, right? There was the the some major moments of the the big big mining company pulling out of it and say it's not worth it. Oh, it looked like it was gone. Okay, great. And then there was the moment when the EPA under the last administration said we're not going to permit this. It, okay, it's done. Yeah. And it just it's like the zombie issue. Yeah. Right, and then there was that a couple weeks ago when when people like me who got sucked in momentarily and thought, "Oh, I think we made another." Nope, no, we haven't made another step forward. We're just stuck in the same limbo. I thought the watershed moment was when you had a rare circumstance where hippies, Native Alaskans, commercial fishermen, <laughs> and brown bear guides all agreed on something. Yeah, I was like. Dude, no way. <laughs> that doesn't happen. Let's make a bet. I'll bet you $1,000. <laughs> well, that's still going on, right? You know, the opposition is as high as it's ever been. We actually did a poll not that long ago. And on a development issue in Alaska, 62% of the population opposes Pebble. And like, I don't remember, like a quarter of the population supports it. That never happens. You know, whether it's, you're talking about drilling for oil in the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge, and I don't know where we are in Lake Logging in the Tongass anymore. You know, I think that that's kind of moved more towards opposition than support. But Pebble, Alaskans don't want Pebble. And the closer you get to the Pebble prospect, other than a couple of small communities that have a huge Pebble presence, they don't want it. Yeah, when you got guys like, I would like to have permission to kill any marine mammal that comes near my salmon. Oh, and stop Pebble Mine. Yeah. Like, that's how he feels like, you know, it yeah. to me feels like they, they'll, they'll never be able to do this. Yeah, I want to shoot sea lions, but I hate pebble. <laughs> so what, is there any, there's no real death for this. Like there's no way, like you can't, Yeah. because they tried the state referendum and that didn't work. You remember this one? There was a state vote to, to like, basically took it to the voters yep. through something that kind of would have been deathly to pebble mine. Sort of. But it was too far reaching, right? It, no, it was well, like, it was too, you couldn't get on board. People couldn't get on board with it because it was had uncertain implications there, for the future. There's two things. So there was a referendum that passed, and it passed in every precinct in Alaska, and that was bankrolled by the late great Bob Gillum, who was the the rich guy who actually went to Wharton with Donald Trump, and it essentially said that the state legislature would have final say over the permitting of Pebble. It ever, if it ever got to the point where they got to the final state permit then the legislature would have to vote up or down on it. Mm-hmm. Pebble claims it's unconstitutional, and they said they'll sue at a later date if need be. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't stop it because under our state constitution, the public can't appropriate land, so you had to do this like bureaucratic thing. Then there was another initiative that would have updated safeguards for you know development in salmon habitat, and I was a big part of that, and we just got outspent and like 10 or 12 to 1, and you know, it was it was not an easy read for the public, and, and we went down to defeat. Um, what could happen is the right thing is done through the federal government via the Clean Water Act. Pebble decides to walk away. Um, 
and then the state of Alaska does not allow another mining company to come in and, you know, top file on those claims. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, ultimately you would have to get a governor and a legislature and public will in Alaska to say that we're going to take this land and we're going to put it in a protected status. Mm. And we could, we could do that. Actually, like that's the way you'd seal the coffin. That's right. And then, you know, probably going to be another 15 years, but if that's what it takes. Yeah. You ever hear this thing called the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge? Yeah. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Giving something a cool name doesn't necessarily. <laughs> no. No. You know, but, but uh, you know, I have a lot of friends, people I've known for a long time, worked on that issue. But Pebble is different because so many people use it. So many people depend upon it for their livelihood. And, you know, even by Alaska standards, it's on a pedestal, right? Very few people are lucky enough to go to the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. But a lot of people go to Bristol Bay. Like where I live in Homer, there's a whole fleet. You know, every every June, they get in their gill netters and head across Cook Inlet and take the road over to Lake Iliamna and out the Quijack to go fish. And then see them eight weeks later and they tell me how shitty their season was. But they all seem to have nice houses and nice trucks and things like that. So. When I made my bet with my sister-in-law, I also told her that there would be um, resistance. There would be, what's it called? Um, you know, like, like uh, not, not vigilante, but uh, social disobedience. Is that the term? That fits. The people go out and chain themselves to bulldozers and shit like that. I'm going to chain my daughter to something or another landing strip or something. Civil disobedience. Civil disobedience. I was like, there'd probably be civil disobedience. Cause it means so much to people. I, you know, you got a handful of people that like, you got a handful of people that are going to make a bunch of money, but then you got a bunch of people who spend a decade, a, a, a decade of a, a decade's worth of emotion being like, you can't just, there's some things you can't shit up. Like there's some things that are too precious and beautiful and you just have to be comfortable leaving it. And I feel like yeah. that some people are so impassioned about that that in the end, when all the legal stuff was done, there'd be like one last push where people got nasty. Monkey wrench gang. Yeah. I would never advocate for something like that, but but I'm not saying I that could, you need to advocate for it. But I I'm saying like, see, don't I you could, imagine? You know, I I have heard you know people kind of looking at this issue from not you know the perspective, the narrow, too close perspective, too close to the screen perspective of me saying like, yeah, this you could see how this if everything went wrong from the regulatory and legal framework, you know, you could see this being like Keystone XL, you know where you have people laying down in front of things. And, you know, you, you start thinking about the people in that region, how long they've been fighting against this thing. They can trace their history back there 10,000 years, and they really don't want it. That's what I'm getting at, man. Yeah, yeah there's that whole concept of social license in the in devel- in the, you know, development industry and mining in particular, and there's Pebble does not have social license. I don't think they'll ever, ever get it, no matter how much money they spend, how much propaganda they put out there. It's just never going to happen. 
where's it going to sit with if, if uh, let's say old Biden wins? Still haven't seen anybody flying a Biden flag. Where's yeah. it gonna, if if Biden wins? I don't imagine it's going to Pebble's going to move for four years. No, or however long. He's no, he did he did tweet on it saying that for. if you know he was elected president, Pebble doesn't move forward. That's but, four. That's four years. Yeah. yeah, that doesn't that doesn't kill anything. That just means it would probably just stall out, right? Then you'd get a future administration. I mean, you do, fire it back up. You, you or, just, or do you think that they would actually like? Do you think that Biden's team would just be like not cooperative, and it would just be quiet? Or do you think Biden's team would come in and like try to like wrap it up? We would. We would. You know, we would try to convince them to do that. To to do some things that would make it yeah extra hard for the next people. Yep. Yeah, try to fire. But it honestly, up. you know, we're going to try, and some of our cohorts are going to try, no matter who's the president. So, but Biden, Biden did tweet uh, saying that Pebble is a non-starter if he's president. I was having a conversation one time with some people close to the current administration, and I was like, "Man, I don't see like why not just take a why not just take a conservation win." that isn't going to cost you. You guys aren't going to lose. You're not going to lose Alaska. How many, how many delegates does Alaska have? Well, we've got one rep, you know, and our, our electoral votes don't matter. Yeah. You, that's what I'm saying. Sorry, not delegate. You, yeah. You're the electoral, the electoral college. It's like yeah. you're not going to lose Alaska. No, if you did lose Alaska, it's like, you're not gonna lose it anyway. No, they won't lose. Like no. Trump's not gonna lose Alaska. No. If you did lose Alaska, it's not that many electoral votes. Right. It's like you're you're gonna piss off Alaska's governor who's under recall. Is he still under recall? Nope. Okay. Not he survived recall. that. Okay. Yeah. You're gonna piss off Alaska's well, like governor. I ki- they, that got kicked down the road. But, oh, it did. Yeah. Okay. You're gonna piss off their governor, but you're still gonna carry the state. Right. It's like I don't see the the mining company isn't even a U.S. company. Mm-mm. I don't see why not just like why not just take the conservation win. Yeah. It's a big, high-profile thing. You can then go and, and you know, the, certainly they'll do other things that are going to piss off hunters and anglers and other places, and it's just like part of life. They might even do it. A cynic might be like, oh, yeah, they could kill Pebble, and it'll, be, it'll provide air cover to be able to do more work in Anwar. Right. There's all these, like, you know, there's all these, like, cynical perspectives. But why not just take the win and, and then whatever you do down the, in the future, you could look and be like, but, but, we helped you guys out on Pebbles, so shut up. What was the response that you got to that? They weren't like, okay, we're on it. <laughs> it wasn't <laughs> like that. It was just a conversation. Yeah. I, I agree with you. It seems like just a way to, if nothing else, man, just accept it as cover for, cover for what you got to do down the road. Yeah. Protecting no one's going to punish you. No. No one's going to punish you. You know, maybe like the American Mining Association, but they'll get over it. I mean, there's there's all kinds of talk, even in the mining industry, that this is, you know, this drags us all down. You know, the optics around it, the human rights issue, the fishery, the economics, it makes us all look bad. Yeah, they'd be like, next time we do something, just keep your mouth shut. Yeah. You know, I just keep, I keep, yeah, exactly. I just keep coming back to the quality of the environmental impact statement, right? It's so bad that it's just going to, it's just going to make people take a harder look at every other environmental impact statement for every other mine elsewhere in the United States. It's like, is this the new standard? If this is new standard, you're just going to be in court forever. And that's what I just keep trying to, you know, pound away. It's like, this is a, 
the set, the size, type, and location of Pebble, and the diversity of opinion against it, the economic concerns that are, you know, pushing you know back. Just do the right thing. It's yeah. one place. You know, it'd be an interesting activity in the future. Would be to come in and 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 take a look at uh, how <laughs> how much money was spent on lawyers through this process. <sighs> lawyers like that industry has to be like i don't care what they decide in the end but this has been quite good for us <laughs> yeah i mean lawyers uh you know uh public relations firms all the uh-huh. advertising things like that i don't know i was it's like to... an economic it's like like debating pebble is an economic driver yeah you know it's funny because you hear that it's like well you know you only work on this tim because you know it makes you money like you can i would you get rich as shit tim <laughs> no <laughs> I would I would love if tomorrow I do you didn't get have four, to talk about this ever again. Do you get again. four million dollars when they when their I permit am not gets gonna, rejected? Yeah, if, if, if the permit gets rejected, I am not getting a four and a half million dollar nor a twelve and a half million dollar bonus. It's not happening. Yeah. I would love to have no other role to play in this than to go visit some friends and go catch some trout. You know, we haven't we haven't talked about what your like what, what banner you fly under. So the name of the outfit I am sort of in control of, <laughs> in charge of, is it's called Salmon State. Um, the 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 whole idea of we want to make sure that Alaska remains a place where salmon thrive, and you know Alaska is kind of the last remaining salmon state, and we're where we promote laws and policies and and uh, practices that ensure Alaska remains the home of the greatest wild salmon resource on the planet, and the source of food and income and culture for people across the political spectrum. My brother had a good point. We were talking about, we were talking about the conservation movement in the lower 48. And what I was saying to him is I was complaining to him about, um, Alaskans and their conservation battles are always coming to the lower 48. Right. I was like, you, like, people down there need to hear about this issue we have now, right? But it's a one-way flow. I'm like, how come I never get, how come people in Alaska are never fired up about the conservation battles that are being waged down here? Like, I know all kinds of people that live in Michigan, Utah, Montana, right? Yeah. And we're fired up about your guys' issues. We're fired up about Pebble Mine. We'd like to protect Anwar. But I never hear from you sons of bitches on anything we're doing down here. Yeah, I think, you know, with, and, <laughs> well, with like, you know, say like Tongass National Forest or the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge, those are federal lands, so they're owned by every American. So there's always that, you know, that concept of, you know, you're just as important to the debate as someone who lives in Fairbanks. And it's true. Yeah. This know. conversation brought up an observation, though. That it led to an observation where we were trying to say, like, why is it different? And, and he was saying that, Conservation in the lower 48 is a lot about recovery and it's a lot about land management. Conservation um, in Alaska is a lot of, is more about wildlife management, meaning that they're not trying to repair habitat. Right. Like down here, we're always trying to fix everything. Right. How do we fix the Columbia River? Right, 
how do we fix the Meadowlands in New Jersey? Like, what could ever be like, it's, it's ruined or mostly ruined. Like, what could we do to hang on to some vestige and make things a little better? The conversation there is like, dude, sitting pretty. Things look solid. And it's just kind of like, it's a different fight. Yeah, it's different. So it's like holding on to perfect things. Yep. Can we just keep the perfect things perfect? Yeah. It's not like these elaborate plans to try to fix some massive mistake we made 100 years ago. Right. And those things are really hard to do, and they're really expensive. I mean, that's salmon in a nutshell, right? And that's sort of the premise for why, why we're doing what we're, what we're doing at Salmon State is you just look at recovery efforts all around the Pacific Northwest and in British Columbia when it comes to wild salmon, and it's not working. You know, we're at what? Because it's too, it's too complicated. Yeah. There's no way, like, even if you had all the money and all the willpower, right? Yep. It'd still be like, it's, there's still like a sort of component to recovering salmon in the Columbia or whatever. There's still like a component of just like brain power and thought that isn't there or like engineering that's, you know what I mean? It's too hard. Even with all kinds of money, it's hard. Yeah. There's too many parts to it. Yeah, there's a lot of moving But something like Pebbly, like, it's already perfect. Yep. It's so easy. Just don't, ruin it yep and i think or for, else you'd be sitting there talking about in 100 years how are we gonna fix it and people be like you can't right <laughs> you know and in the lower 48 a lot of us there's still the mythology of alaska and i think that there's an investment for for us down here just knowing that it's there right like there's there's a different relationship that we have with the idea of alaska and wanting to get there. I know that was the case for me as a kid, having read all the stories that I read in magazine articles and everything else. Like that was a place I wanted to go. That was my goal. And just just the value of knowing that it exists in the form that it does brings, I think, those of us in lower 48, significant positive feelings. Yeah, I would sign a deal. I would sign a deal if someone said, okay, we'll kill Pebble Mine, but here's the deal. You can't step ever again in your life within 200 miles of the epicenter of that mine or anything that that water flows into or any of the streams you can't go there i'd be like oh, okay it's fine that's on that yeah, i'd be right. bummed about it but i'd, I'd, yeah, I'd be, be like all right sure <laughs> but I'd, I'd take that deal it's like it's not like i need to you know like never go back again but i know it it stays protected yeah like, that's cool yep I'd even sign away my kids' ability to go yeah. there. Use nor your children forever. Yeah, no, seriously. Yeah. No, I like, take you, that. Not only you, your children and your children's children cannot fish those rivers. You know, but that's the thing about that pebble is a little bit different than, say, the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge, where you're talking about, you know, that is like, that is out there and you're either going to develop it or it's just going to be left alone for caribou and mosquitoes and a few intrepid people right i mean bristol bay is highly utilized it just works you know you have tens of thousands of people make their make their living off that resource and it's proven that it's sustainable and it's renewable so it's been that weird it's a good it's a good distinction yeah Yeah. i don't think you're trying i don't think you're trying to sell uh i don't think you're trying to sell anwar short but it's a reasonable distinction definitely not i'm you know it's not like a it's not elitist yeah i yeah whether it's it's not a museum you know Mm -hmm. it's not a park I mean, there are parks, yeah. but those get heavily utilized yeah, as well by the lodges, you know? It's a place that works. It shows that there's actually something between you can't go there at all and you have to destroy it, that there's something in between. And I think that's kind of what, you know, 
your stuff's all about, right? I mean, getting out there and doing things, just don't ruin it. That's why I, with that, you know, I came to Alaska in 91 and worked in a, on a sane boat and in a cannery. And, oh, you did? Yeah, it was miserable. Um, but I just was captivated. You know, I just like, I got to go back because of what it represented. You know, live, I lived in Southeast for a long time. and You, you, know, you know what worked on a cannery? Yeah, and catch a can. You got how many fingers you got? I got all my fingers, man. Yeah. <laughs> You must not have stayed long. <laughs> I'm yeah. joking. Yeah. So, but you know, that whole idea of just being able to, you know, go out in all these public lands and essentially do whatever you want, except screw it up. No, it's amazing it's how well, freedom. how well it works and how heavily yeah. it's utilized. Like yeah. that, that is still mind blowing to me. Think, talk about the number of salmon that are taken out of that system. Yeah. And it's still self-perpetuating the number of lodges and boats and planes. You know, you feel like you're out in the middle of nowhere, but when you're on those rivers, you're not by yourself. No. There are mm-hmm. people fishing all around you. And yet it still maintains that character of wilderness incredibly well. It's, a, it's like a really resilient space to, as long as you don't do anything overtly terrible. Right. Those fish keep coming back. Those yeah. nutrients work. The bears are there. The moose are there. It's, it's holding on. It's a good point I hadn't considered, man. I think there are, are there, there are those places that should be just landscape. left alone, but yeah. it's a working landscape. Yeah. Miles, you good? I have one other one that maybe maybe fits as my own personal desire. And I know you're not a sockeye expert. No. But maybe you have the answer to this, maybe you don't. I was told when I was working up there, and I took this as gospel without digging into it. Sockeye only reproduce in systems with lakes, correct? Pretty much, yeah. Yeah. Is it true that they are, therefore, like microinvertebrate feeders only, and they, they do not eat other fish or creatures? As far as I know, they do not. Okay, yeah. but you, you're not you're not coming out as like the solid def, definitive expert on this because I, I, I I'm under the same belief. This that you is a are. Weird, I know it's a weird thing too, but uh, yeah, my bro would be on the answer to that one. But the yeah. other day we were uh, floating a river up there, and and uh, they were well colored fish, but my god, do they just aggressively chase down spoons and spinners only when they're there though? Yeah, right. like so. Here's the thing, and this is why river. I hated guiding for them because you wanted to awful. get them when they were fresh. And they don't, uh, unlike the other species of Pacific salmon, they do not attack generally right. your offerings. They just swim right by it. So 95, 99% of sockeye that you catch that are fresh, if you're doing it on rod and reel, yeah. you're snagging them in the face. You're flossing them. You're just flossing right. them. Right. And I was always told that the reason they don't attack lures or spinners or flies or anything is because they're not accustomed to hunting down prey. Yeah, they're eating like krill and like exactly. like, fil- like open mouth feeding Filter through. Feeding. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That was my understanding. But these old played out, half spawned out fish. Oh, they, they attack it's anything. It's so weird. They're like pissed. Yeah, yeah, like a big angry male. Yeah. Yeah, you catch predominantly males, but man, they're pissed. Yeah. Defending the spawning rights. Let's put my guess. Yeah, we yeah. put some, some of the guys that we work, some of our crew guys that just can't fish. It's like, now's your chance to shine. Here you go. <laughs> I bet you catch one. <laughs> one of these guys, he caught five. And when he cast, generally the, the he'd cast, and his cast generally goes like far overhead and <laughs> kind of lands lob. at his toes. I was like, what? like, I don't understand what you're doing. But he casts and like point the rod skyward. The thing is sort of go up and then kind of land by his feet. But then Sockeye would swim over and grab it. <laughs> it doesn't matter where you put it. They're going to find it. <laughs> I was like, dude, it's your time. <laughs> he yeah. wanted a picture to show his kids. They're cool looking fish when they yeah, get all colored they're, they're up. They are pretty cool. They're real pretty. All right. Well, that I, I, I'm kind of exactly ended that where I started thinking that was the case, but I, I'd love to like get definitive answer. On yeah. That if I was, if I'm right about I, what I'll I've find been told. out for sure. All right, Tim. Thanks for making the trip down. Yeah, it was my pleasure to go back to where you came from. Now. Yep. Appreciate it. 
Yeah. Keep, yeah, keep slugging away, man. We will. Well, we should ask the question, what can people do if, they, if they're interested in helping yeah. continue stop the uh, pedal, I got two more mind. questions, though, for that one. Do you get death threats and stuff like that? I haven't in a long time. You know, I think, I think other people have, you know, taken on leadership roles and I'm kind of, kind of faded into the background a little bit. So yeah. that's, that's nice. I, you know, like, like Alana, who would have been great to get down here. She just can't, you know, with, with everything going on in her community, but you know, she's, she's, people are in her face all the time. I mean, the, the, the people in like those communities, the Alaska native people in those communities, they're, they're super tough and really brave. Um, but you know, we've all had our moments where we've been harassed by the, Mm. By the powers that be. Yeah. Yeah. And then for Yanni's question, right now it's just sit and wait, or is there stuff people should be doing? Well, you know, you can always weigh in with your elected officials, right? You know, because I think there, there could be a congressional play at some point. You know, there's there's been talk of, well, the House of Representatives actually passed a spending bill. Uh, Jared Huffman out of California, that no money can be spent on the processing of the pebble project environmental impact statement in fiscal year 2021 mm. and the senate will take up a comp you know a companion spending bill and then they'll do some sausage making in theory before the the year's out and you know right into the right into your senators asking them to you know support efforts not to fund the eis look no matter where you are on the issue you know there's a lot of debate out there about the quality of this thing and maybe we just take a time out for a year so that's one thing you could do in the the immediate term and then uh and then we've got a we've got a website that's a consortium of a lot of different groups now. StopPebbleMineNow.org, and uh, it's got a ton of good information and ways you can weigh in. I'm working on a philosophy, a political philosophy. It's called environmental nationalism. Um, part of this would be this: if it really is the biggest pile of gold in the world. Isn't it sweet that we own it and it's just sitting there waiting for us? Right? Yep. Let everybody else... Copper. Let everybody else screw their area up. It's not going anywhere. It's been there for millions of years, maybe billions of years. Um, Just leave it there. Yeah. It's not like, it's not like strike now or we'll never be able to get it. Well, that's... If it really comes down to something where like America will end... Like America will end and we'll all die. And the American dream will be over. The American experiment will collapse if we can't get some gold. There it is. Yeah. Until no, then. <laughs> and there's nothing to say that in 50 or 100 years, we won't have the mining technology to take it out of there without scarring the surface and possibly killing. Yeah, probably not. No, some no, do some do the crazy witching rod, and it just sucks yeah, right, gold right. out of the ground. <laughs> I mean, that's the problem with pebble, right? There's a lot of it there, but it's low grade. It's a huge excavation. Yeah, but you're, you're saying that we're not smart enough to eventually figure out how to get it out without. I I'm hoping that we're smart enough that we realize we don't really need gold for anything. Mm. You know, like yeah. a majority of it goes to jewelry at Walmart and to dowries, and you know, for like marriages and other cultures and countries. It's not like. It's not like it's a critical mineral copper. It's a, a totally different story, but who knows what we'll figure out as far as renewables go in the future. And as far as these, there's some rare earth minerals there too, right? And they talk about that. And we're going to need that for the for the renewable economy. Um, 
but you know, the, the thing that always stops these guys dead in their tracks is kind of the, just the exact opposite of that. It's like, okay, we're, this is in the national interest because, you know, the Chinese have all these rare earth minerals. Are you telling me you're never going to sell any of the material that comes out of Pebble on the international market? And that just stops the conversation right there. It's just like oil. Mm-hmm. You know, there is no, there is no like national market for oil. It, it's all traded on the, on the global market. That's how commodities work. Yeah, so, I got you. But I like that, you know, and I've heard that from a lot of people. It's like, why wouldn't we just, you know, invest against the fact that we actually have this resource in the ground, you know, and speculate on it. It's a different kind of speculation, but it's one that you have to get you have your cake and eat it too. You have wild salmon run and you get to, you know, do weird shit with the stock market that most people don't understand. <laughs> when I uh, first went on a date with my wife, I bet my buddy a hundred bucks that uh, I'd end up marrying her after our first date. And he's like, bullshit. We bet a hundred dollars, and I had two years to do it. And he sent me my hundred bucks, and we also wrote our bet up in a little contract when we were drinking. And so I framed the hundred bucks in the contract. Right? It's not lost on me that there could be a situation in which I would bust that glass and get that hundred bucks out. Mm-hmm. It would take a lot. We're not there yet. We haven't been there in the last. 10 years is there a way in which some way i would break the glass and get the 100 bucks out no river so long that there's not a bend right like i don't know but right now i like it where it is yeah i don't want to break the glass and so do a lot of people and that's the thing you know and they all depend on it hopefully never but i'm just saying think about it's like it's not going anywhere there's not like a thing where like it's like if you it's not like get it now or it, it's gone. Right. We can afford not to, like, we're rich enough and lucky enough as a country. I don't want to say rich and lucky because it might be like, we're fortunate enough and we've done enough things right as a country that we can have pristine places. Right. It is a tremendous, not, a lu- not like a luxury, like we just fell onto it. We've, people have done things. We have made sacrifices to have places that we can afford to leave and, and have cities and have a great economy and do all this and have perfect places. Yep. Perfect places like like God put them there. Yep. So we should be jumping up and down with joy. Agreed. We can pull it off. We can have a hundred bucks in a picture frame hanging on our wall. Well, I'm I'm gonna work really hard to make sure you get your thousand bucks. Please. Your other, I want you to be two for two. Oh, Eleven hundred dollars. Nice. You, you gonna frame up ten of them? <laughs> I'm not framing this thousand, man. This thousand is going into the family pile. But <laughs> thank you. All right, thanks for coming down, man. My pleasure. Good luck. Thanks. You know, not for your own sake, but for yeah, ours. Good luck. Not for for everybody. Yeah. <laughs> it's like when they say good luck to someone in Star Wars, right? Right. Yeah. For the Force. That's right. All right. Thank you. Thank you.
Hey, you ever needed something for your home but don't have the cash or credit to pay for it? You can do that at Aaron's. Yep, you can rent to own appliances like washers, dryers, or refrigerators, furniture for your living room or bedroom, even tech. Plus, Aaron's has great brands like HP, Samsung, and Ashley. Life's always changing. Keep it, return it, upgrade it. Aaron's fits your life instead of the other way around. So check out your nearest Aaron's store or visit Aaron's.com to see what I'm talking about. Approval isn't guaranteed and some restrictions apply. You got to see your local store for details. Clean and protect your firearms with Riptide Armory. Riptide, a veteran-founded business. It's dedicated to producing American-made cleaning chemicals and also dedicated to creating American jobs. And that commitment is embodied in every product that's bottled, labeled, and shipped from their Arvada, Colorado facility. Safe for all firearm types and surfaces. Embrace the power of American ingenuity and protect your firearms with the best. Visit RiptideArmory.com. 